Turn please with me in God's word to Psalm number 96. Psalm number 96. And we'll read from the first verse. O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord. Bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Today, declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Amen. We trust the Lord to even bless the reading of the word. Uh, Worship is absolutely central to the Christian life. In fact, you could argue that it's the primary reason for the Christian life. Uh, God created us and saves us and draws us back to himself so that we might worship, so that we might be worshippers and glorify our God. This is the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And for that reason, that we are called to be worshippers. Many of the Psalms, especially especially as you get further on in the book of Psalms, they give this repeated call, exhorting us to sing unto the Lord, to worship the Lord, to lift up the Lord's holy name. And just to pick a few from around here, Psalm 95 begins by calling on us to sing unto the Lord, to make a joyful, <clears throat> a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Uh, this Psalm, um, Psalm 96, obviously calls for us to sing unto the Lord a new song, to sing unto the Lord all the earth. Psalm 97, the Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice. There's this call to gladness in the rule of, of God. Psalm 98 calls for people to sing unto the Lord a new song again. You could, you could list many other psalms as well. Um, but repeatedly there is this call to the people, to, to us. Come before the Lord, sing, rejoice, worship him, worship your God. And that's absolutely appropriate, as even this psalm emphasizes to us. Now there is a historical background to it um, that we can trace. It seems to have been written at one of those highlight reel moments in the life of David. 
in First Chronicles 16, as David and Israel transported the Ark of the Covenant up from the house of Obed-Edom into Jerusalem, where it was going to take up residence, it was a moment of celebration and rejoicing, and David appointed some of the Levites to offer praise and thanks to God. He gave some musical instruments, he delivered a psalm to Asaph, uh, with which to thank the Lord. And that psalm that you can actually read in First Chronicles 16, it ends up being broken into three parts. And you've got it in the book of Psalms, Psalm 105, 106, and then this one, Psalm 96. So it is slightly different from what you get in First Chronicles 16. Maybe edited very slightly for being put into the book of Psalms, but it's nearly identical, uh, word for word, to what you get there. So certainly the original setting for the psalm is, seems to be the, the Ark of the Covenant being brought up into Jerusalem. It's a moment of triumph for the nation, a moment where you might rightly celebrate and rejoice in the Lord. The recent years had been hard for Israel, especially as they struggled with the attacks of the Philistines. And then even after that, as they struggled with civil war, David uh, against the house of Saul for a, for a time. But now... God had, a, God had established his anointed king on the throne of the nation. And, and as the ark is being transported to Jerusalem, it's this token of God's presence in the center of the nation. God is there and he's ruling his people through his appointed king. It's a, it's a moment too that holds out hope for the years that lie ahead. In terms of the grand scheme of redemption, it's a, a key moment because it, it points us to the day when Christ, the the everlasting king and the one who you could say is the fulfillment of the, the very ark of God, the one who, whose presence is God with us in the fullest sense, when he would enter into Jerusalem and establish his kingdom and, and triumph um, at the cross. Uh, understandably, at a moment like this, a moment of triumph, as the ark comes to Jerusalem, God is known in the midst of his people, the call goes out to praise, to worship the Lord. And it's this call that we want to think about today. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. But we're thinking about God's call to worship. Now, the first thing I want to highlight is the extent of this call. You could say the scope of it. I'll say the extent of God's call. There are lots of psalms that call for people to praise the Lord, to rejoice in his presence, to worship him, and you would understand why. One of the significant things, though, to notice in this psalm is the vast extent of this call. See, we might expect a call to be issued to the people of God. You know, he hears, take the setting of the ark going up to Jerusalem. It's a triumphant day. You know, there's the procession. There's lots of excitement. And you might understand the call going out to God's people. Look what God has done. He's established you. Come and, and praise the Lord. You might expect that. Surprisingly, though, you'll notice this call extends far beyond that. This call extends to the entirety of the earth. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. The thing we need to grasp immediately from the psalm is that our God desires and even demands the worship of all his creation. 
There's a mandate for God's name to be praised, not just by you and me, but by the people in the community around us here in Locke or further afield, by the people across our country, by mankind across the whole face of the earth. All are called upon to sing praise unto the Lord. Now, obviously, that doesn't maybe strike us too significant because, well, we're we're used nowadays to the global nature of the gospel call and Christ's people certainly are found right across the face of the earth. So maybe it doesn't surprise us that there's a call to the earth to praise God. But bear in mind the context here. God's people are in one little corner of the earth in Israel. And generally when Israelites thought about the nations around them, they're thinking about enemies. Certainly nearly all the surrounding nations to Israel had at various points been their enemies, whether it's the Egyptians enslaving them, or whether it's the different attacks from like the Amalekites or the Moabites or the Edomites, the Midianites, to name a few. All these different peoples had come against Israel at different points. In recent years, the Philistines had been a, a major threat when the psalm was, was written. You might expect there to be no thought whatsoever in Israel about all the earth, that the nations joining in with Israel to praise the Lord, standing shoulder to shoulder with Israel to to lift up the name of God. But, you know, even in those Old Testament days, here's a psalm that very much finds its fulfillment in this gospel age and points us to it, where the good news of Christ goes into all the world, where people are actively being brought onto God from the nations so that God might be praised by all the earth. The extent of this call, it becomes even more striking when you think of what the nations of the earth are to sing. You see, verse 1 says, O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. We're to sing a new song. Now, when it refers to a new song, it's not merely that people should compose literally new new, new sort of words and new tunes and things like that. Um, something more interesting, something novel to sing unto God. Uh, The concept of singing a new song, it centers more on the idea of singing new things in light of God's gracious work, what what the new things that God has done. Singing a, a new song is quite often connected with the idea of singing a song of redemption. There's the idea God has done done something new and wonderful for us, and therefore there's a a need to sing new songs. Our singing shouldn't just be um, uh, the the same old songs that we sang in the past. God has done great things for us, and he's put a new song in our mouth. He's put a a new song of praise into our our lips because he's he's done new things to to show his mercy to us. In in Revelation uh, 5, verse 9, you're shown the throne room of heaven, where there's a sealed scroll, there's a a fair bit of grief in the heavenly throne room because no one is found who can open the seals of this scroll. And I suppose what you have there is no one is able to bring God's redemptive purposes and plans for for, for the end of all things to a completion. No one's able to do it. And then finally someone is found. There's, there's the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's the lamb of God stands up and he's able to come and take the scroll And when he does so, the the 24 elders uh, around the throne, they fall down in worship. And it says they they sung a a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, 
For thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every nation and tongue and pe- out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now notice that they, they sang this new song, and it centers on the fact that Christ has redeemed us to God by his blood from every nation. You get something similar in Revelation 14, verse 3, where there's a picture of the people of Christ. There's 144,000, and they're, they're there with the Lord, uh, the Lord's name written upon their foreheads. These are the people marked out as God's people. And it says, they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. So you've got these people, they've been redeemed from the earth, they're God's people, the saints, and they're singing this new song, and not only that, but others can't sing it. No one else can learn this song. And they can't sing it because others haven't experienced it. Here are people who know God's redemption, and they therefore can sing this new song. They've got reason for it, because they know what God has done for them. At the point when you put this into Psalm 96 is that the nations are not being called to praise God merely out of slavish duty. This is not just, you're all made by God, you're all creatures, and therefore praise the God who created you. Of course, that would be appropriate, but that's not the reason. This psalm, it's portraying God's saving power being known by the nations. The multitudes of the earth being gathered to the Lord to rejoice before him. This psalm would emphasize that God desires people from right across the earth to know him and to then rejoice in him and worship him. Now, because of that dramatic scope, that this great extensive call to worship, it's important for us to recognize the duty that is placed on us as the people of God. See, hand in hand with the duty to praise the Lord ourselves, to worship God ourselves, is the duty to declare the things of God to those around us. You notice how in these opening verses you get this perfect blend of worship, praise, hand in hand with evangelism. In verse 2, sing unto the Lord, bless his name, and then notice it. Show forth his salvation from day to day and declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. This psalm shows us that God desires and requires all the earth to bow their hearts and to worship him. And since it's the will of God for the heathen, for the nations to come and bow before the Lord, there is this duty placed upon God's people to actually go forth and to proclaim the glories of God to this darkened world. Now again, you think of the significance of a psalm like this being inspired by God, composed there in the days of David. In days when you've got Israel, the church of God, in one little corner of the earth, and all the nations out there are sort of looked upon with nervousness, their enemies and so on. And then the psalm comes and says, declare his glory among the heathen. You know, go forth into their midst and declare the glory of God. Well, it's certainly it's a psalm that finds its fulfillment in this gospel age, when there very much is the call to go forth 
into all the world, the highways, the byways, every place, and to show forth the salvation of God from day to day, to declare his glory among the heathen. The, the desire of God is for the worship of all the earth. The obvious problem when you think of that desire is that the world is in darkness. This world does not know the Lord who is worthy of praise. There are many people around us in the community here and God's will is for them to be worshippers, for them to rejoice in his salvation with praise, with thanksgiving, but they don't know him. And so there is this task given to us that we are to show forth God's salvation, to declare his glory among the heathen. You know, I think you could also say these things go together very well, praising the Lord ourselves and and also declaring his glories, because declaring the glories of God is part of praising him. If you think about praise, we we can praise someone in two different ways. You know, we can obviously praise them by speaking to them and and telling them their positive attributes. We can also praise them by speaking to others. You know, I might want to praise my wife and, you know, there might be times where I I want to say something personally to her and just tell her how much I've appreciated something and how, how wonderful she's been in a certain area. And I highlight that. Maybe not enough, but maybe, maybe there's an area where I would, I would maybe highlight that to her. That's one way to praise. Another way would be to talk well of her to someone else to tell others of how much I've appreciated the help of my wife in certain areas or whatever, and, and the positive traits and how much that has benefited me. And that, that's praising her too. Well, well, it's the same when it comes to the worship of the Lord and praising him. We certainly praise him you know, in those times where we come together, maybe in public worship, and we, we lift up our hearts and we sing the glories of God who has redeemed us through Christ. There's, there's praise for God as we sing of his attributes and his glory. But we're also praising the Lord when we go forth outside our own four walls and we're, we're coming into contact with other people and we're living and speaking in such a way that others might know the glory of our God. We're, we're sharing it with others. Well, here is a duty given to us. Show forth God's salvation. Do it continually from day to day. Declare his glory. We're to have missional hearts. We're to join with God in this great longing that others might be worshippers, that others might come and themselves praise our God. Can I also highlight that one of the major driving forces, perhaps the central driving force behind evangelism, is this desire for worship. Uh, I don't know who originally said it, but I came across what I thought was a useful quote. It said, worship is the fuel and goal of missions. And Uh, The idea is that we go forth with the gospel out of a heart of worship. It's the fuel. It gives us the desire to live for our God, this this heart of praise for him. Uh, But we also go forth with an evangelistic spirit, not just so that people might be saved from hell and given a ticket to heaven. But, I mean, that's more man-centered thinking, you know, that we're, we're going forth and we're evangelizing for the sake of other people. And of course, it's, it's okay, it's perfectly good, appropriate to have a heart for other people. But that's not where our motivations should stop, at a man-centered level. You know, we want the best for that person. We want them saved from hell. That, that certainly is a major part. But beyond that, we're to go forth in evangelism with this heart that says, I want my God to be glorified. 
the God who has done all things for me, who has rescued me from hell myself, the one who has shown his, his glory to me, I long to see him glorified by the world around me. A heart of worship, a desire for the praise of God should actually drive us onward uh, to evangelize and to declare the things of God uh, among the heathen, among the nations. The challenge for us as we think of this psalm is do we have a heart to see the name of God glorified and not just in our own little circle in these four walls but that the nations, that all the earth including the people of this community and in the Air Peninsula that they might join with us in lifting up the name of God. You know, we're coming to the, the show on Saturday and the, the going forth and looking to give out gospel literature and so on. And, and a major part of it should be this desire, oh, that others in this community would, would know our God and would rejoice in him. Oh, that God would be worshipped appropriately by the people of the earth, even in our area. God desires worshippers. And the challenge is, do we have a heart to, to join with the Lord in that evangelistic spirit that there might be worshippers from all the earth. So we've thought about the extent of this call to worship. It's for all the earth. There's an evangelistic scope to it. Then uh, notice with me the explanation for this call. Why should we be concerned to proclaim the name of the Lord to the world round about? Why should we be concerned with worshipping the Lord ourselves? Well, really, the remainder of the psalm gives various reasons, various explanations that should drive us on in worship and evangelism. The first reason, first explanation, is the Lord's superiority. I'll put it that way. The Lord's superiority. Uh, particularly in verses 4 through 6, there's a, a contrast drawn up between the glorious God of all the earth, the creator, the sustainer, the, the great God, and then the gods of the nations. The nations. And remember, this whole psalm is a call not just to Judah or Israel, not just to the current people of God, but to all the earth to come and worship the Lord. There's this call to everyone, come and worship the Lord because he is great, because he is glorious, because he is far above any alternative. And in verse 4, you declare his glory for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honour and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The major point is that God alone is worthy of man's praise. He, he is the only fitting object of worship because of who he is. He's the great one. He's the glorious one. He's the one of whom verse 6 says, Honour and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty, or, or you could read that, strength and glory as it's sometimes translated. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. You've got the, the glorious God of all the earth, the one full of majesty, the one, who's, the one who's perfect in his attributes, perfect in his being, in his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his truth, his goodness. He's, he's full of glory. He's the beautiful one. He's the one 
in whom there's a feast for your eyes and for your hearts as you draw near and gaze upon your God, and particularly as you draw near to Christ and see God revealed in Christ in all his majesty. He's the God who can satisfy. He's the God who can fulfill. He's the God who is worthy of our adoration. Now, the, the challenge there, before we even think of the comparison, is you know, we ourselves are called to worship, and we, we really ought to worship with real recognition of who our God is. And the challenge would be, today, do we really appreciate the glory and the greatness of our God? And is our appreciation for God's glory seen in our praise, in our living, in our worship? Do others look at us and say, well, yes, there's one who really does have a big God. There's one who lives in light of the greatness of the Lord. Is it evident that we're excited by our God, thrilled to know him, thrilled to be his children, his servants? God is great and greatly to be praised. There ought to be something of that excitement in us to be his. And if there's not, I suppose the answer is get our eyes upon Christ See in Christ the majesty of God and let Christ fill our hearts. Contrast, though, the glory of the Most High with the gods of the nations. Verse 5 says that the gods of the nations are idols. There's actually some nice uh, Hebrew wordplay there. Um, I'm going to teach you a little tiny bit of Hebrew. The word gods is Elohim. You might be familiar with that one. Uh, The word for idols is Elohim. Elohim, gods, and then Elohim, which is idols, or it actually can refer to that which is vain and worthless. Elohim, it's used in Job 13, verse 4, where he tells his supposed friends, ye are all physicians of no value. That's the word, Elohim, no value. Unhelpful, empty, vanity. A good word for an idol. It's nothing. It's just a block of wood or a stone or whatever. It's, it's vanity. It's, it's empty. It's, it's of no value. Well, well, that's the word here. This word that means of no value, worthless, idle. And, you know, you think of the wordplay, the, the, the Elohim of the nations are Elohim. They're, the words sound very similar. It's just a, just a small twist on the word, but it really does emphasize those, those gods of the nations. They're, they're absolutely nothing. They're, they're vanity. They're, they're, they're worthless. And contrast that to the God of all glory and greatness. Now, now, obviously, we understand that the gods of the nations are idols. They're empty vanity. When you think about the nations that surround Israel in those days, you know, and they often did literally serve you know, carved blocks of wood and the like. Think of the time when the Philistines had captured the Ark of God and they, they brought the Ark and they set it up in the house of their god, Dagon. And on that occasion, the Lord made it very clear that Dagon was was vanity, just a just an empty, powerless idol. Because when the Philistines got up in the morning, they found the statue had fallen on his face before the Ark of God. They, they tried to set it up again. You think of the Philistines, and they, they, they're just putting their own effort in to prop up their little idol again. And the next morning, it's fallen again, and this time the head's broken off, and the arms are broken off, the hand's broken off. Dagon was nothing. The Lord was everything. Now, we understand then that... The gods of the nations are idols. They're nothing in that context. What we, what we need to recognize, though, is that this is still a major problem for the world all around us. 
And it's something that we should have a heart to address in our evangelism. When people don't know the Lord and they don't worship the Lord, they still worship something. The nations still have gods. They always do. We are worshipping creatures, whether we realize it or not. Even the atheist has his gods. Today it might not be a particular statue. It might not even be an explicitly religious concept. But God has made mankind with a heart for worship. And we, we all worship something. Again, even, even the atheist has his gods. Today, think of all the things that people run after. The things that people prioritize. You know, really, that, that does indicate where you're, who or what your God is. What, what is your great priority? What, what is the, the priority in life? What's the thing that drives you? What's the thing that, that rules your ambitions and your desires? Well, that's, that's your God. Whatever it is, that, that's your God. The people around us, they set their hearts on all sorts of lesser things, whether it's the gods of materialism, you know, better car, better home, more money in the bank, all those things, or else they bow at the altar of approval, and you get plenty who are just driven day by day to uh, get likes on Facebook or Instagram or these kind of things on the internet, and they're just driven by social approval. Uh, others present themselves at the altar of entertainment, and they live for the next the next computer game, the next TV series, the next movie, and that's what everything revolves around. That's what swallows up the, pretty much the entirety of life. Uh, others erect the temple of work, and life becomes all about the job and advancing through the career and, and getting status that way. You could list all sorts of other things, but the point is we all have our, our gods. And not all of those things are bad in their place. I mean, working hard is perfectly good, for example. But... We have idolatrous hearts, and when ma- mankind is in darkness and has rebelled against the only true object of worship, the Lord himself, we elevate all these things, even legitimate things, into the place of God. We set them on the throne, and we worship and run after these things. And yet the, the Elohim of the nations, all these gods that we run after, they're only Elohim, they're only vanity, they're nothing, they're worthless. They're nothing compared to the God who made us, the God who sustains us, the God who reveals his glory and majesty in the gospel of Christ. And through Christ stands ready to satisfy and to gladden our hearts. They're nothing compared to our God. This is one of the tragedies as we look around the world. So many have their gods, but they're, they're running after empty, broken cisterns. Wells of water that don't have any water. They're running after Things that they've set up and imagined to be glorious, and yet those things are nothing. They're vanity. They're, they're worthless, less than worthless. And the awareness of that major problem in the world around should drive us with the Lord here to, to go forth and to declare the things of God and to see people redirected to the only one who is worthy of their worship. Declare his glory, call others to worship, because God alone is the appropriate object of worship. When we give glory to other things, it's totally inappropriate, it's unwarranted, and yet the call can go out to all the world. Behold your God, verse 7, give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Don't Don't be living anymore to the praise of the gods of entertainment. Don't be living anymore to the praise of the gods of finance. Give the Lord the glory due to his name. 
Give unto the Lord, uh, attribute to the Lord the strength that is, that is his. In, in light of who God is, the call goes out, verse 8, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. We're to worship God because of his superiority then. We're also to worship the Lord because of his sovereignty. The Lord's sovereignty. Verse 10 calls upon us to say among the heathen, the nations, that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. The Lord reigneth. Here's our message to the world. The Lord reigneth. Now, on the one hand, there is the idea of the Lord's sovereignty as God. In that sense, certainly God upholds all things in the world. He's the the glorious one who is active in the world. He's perfectly in control of all things. Nothing happens outside God's plan and purpose. And, And of course, there is a great reason in that to praise the Lord. He is the sovereign God in control of all things. I'd suggest, though, that this is a statement not just about God's sovereignty over the world as God, but also very much about God's saving work through Christ and through the triumph of the gospel. I've already indicated it's a psalm that really does point forward from David's day to the time when the gospel is going out into all the world and the nations are being called on to God. And in that context... There is a a slightly different sense in which we say the Lord reigneth. You know, it it ties in very, very well with what Christ says in Matthew 28 when he gives the Great Commission. Christ said, all power is given unto me. That is all authority, all dominion. That's the idea. Is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. This great commission, it begins with Christ saying, I've got the authority now. All of it, in heaven, in earth, it's all given to me. Christ is essentially saying, I've taken my place on the throne. The throne is mine. I claim lordship over everything. And that's the context in which you are therefore to go and to teach all nations and to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you to, to come and to yield at my command because I'm the king. That's, that's the idea. Certainly that encourages us as we go forth with the gospel, that the Christ is in control of all things. He's the, the Lord on the throne. That should encourage us. It's also one of the central points of the gospel. It's one of the central points of our actual message. We're going to this world and we're saying, Christ is on the throne, and he demands your submission in faith. Think of the day of Pentecost. Peter stood up, and he explained what was happening when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And he certainly spoke, rightly so, about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Those things are vital. The climactic moment was in Acts 2.36, where after saying that Christ had been exalted to the throne in in heaven. He said, therefore, 
let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it's when the people heard of the crucified Savior who, the story doesn't end there, who was actually risen and who was given the throne. He's, he's ruling. It's when they hear this that they're pricked in their hearts and they're asking, what shall we do? Well, in verse 10 of the psalm, there's the idea that, that Jesus Christ has conquered every foe. The Lord has taken his rightful place upon the throne to reign over all things. All authority is given unto him. And the call goes out to the world then. that The Lord has authority over you, wherever you are, in every place. The Lord reigneth. Bow before him. The, the encouragement is given with that truth that Christ reigns for the good of this world. So that it's established. You know, the sin that would bring chaos and ruin to God's creation. That's dealt with in Christ. Here's a king that can establish and bless. It's also emphasized that as king, the Lord judges the people righteously. You know, he, he deals righteously with his people. His is a rule that's marked not by corruption, but, but by goodness and integrity and righteousness. Here's our proclamation to the world. Christ is on the throne. And the loving gospel goes out and you're, you're welcome to come under his peaceful and blessed rule. You know, we're to live in light of that ourselves. Christ is on the throne. That, that should encourage us as we worship. It should encourage us as we declare the things of our Savior. It should encourage us you know, this coming Saturday when we go forth to cleave. You know, we, we go forth in the authority of the one who's on the throne. It, it's also a message to this world Christ has conquered. Christ is on the throne. The Lord reigneth. So bow before him. And to use the language of Psalm 2 verse 12, uh, kiss the son. That's the picture is of coming and kissing the, the ring of the king. Uh, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you, you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. But it says, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. We're called to worship in light of the Lord's superiority. And also in light of the Lord's sovereignty, he reigneth. Then finally, we're called to worship in light of, I'll say the Lord's salvation. Now I'm using the word salvation there, not just in the personal sense where Christ saves us as individuals. Now that, that's certainly included. But also in the ultimate full sense where Christ is the savior of his creation. Now, I don't mean that in a universalist way, where, you know, as if everyone's going to be saved. But I'm using it in the sense that, say, Romans 8 does, where it speaks about the whole creation groaning and travailing in pain together. And yet creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. There's a, a total restoration through Christ, such as the, the victory of our God, that there is ultimate deliverance from the curse, from the brokenness of this world, from its sin and from its misery. And that's what's highlighted in the last three verses. The, the fullness of salvation. It calls upon all of creation to rejoice. It says in verse 11, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea roar, and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful, all that is therein. Let, let then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice. There's this rejoicing this gladness that just seems to fill all of God's creation, whether it's the 
whether it's the sky, the earth, the sea, the, the, the fields, the, the woods, everything is just joining together to rejoice before the Lord. And with good reason. The reason's there in verse 13. Everything's to rejoice because, and to rejoice before the Lord because he cometh. He cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Now, I've said this quite often from the pulpit, but you know, while we have a tendency to think more negatively about the idea of judgment, and certainly there is a solemn side to judgment and to Christ dealing with sin, so it's not totally inappropriate to think of the, the more negative side of that, that there's a, a solemnity about it all. But there is also a very positive aspect to it, and the Psalms tend to dwell more on the positive side of it. The Lord is coming, and he's coming to bring judgment, or you could say justice. And when you put it in that, that language, I mean, it's the same thing, judgment, justice. It's exact, exactly the same concept, and justice maybe sounds a bit nicer to us. He's coming to bring justice. That's a positive thing. That's something to rejoice in. You know, we all understand the grief that results when justice is perverted. In the time when this psalm was written, still to this day, there are plenty of ways in which justice is perverted in this world where there's no legitimate judgment. You know, in some parts of the world, it's very explicit where there's bribery and corruption. The judge just paid something and he looks the other way and the wicked can get away with their crimes and trample the innocent into the dust. Let's face it, the same sort of thing can happen in this part of the world where maybe it's, maybe it's not as explicit, but maybe you get... I know a big company with lots of money, they can employ the best lawyers and they can find the legal loopholes and they can spin everything to their advantage. And again, the ones who don't have that ability are left trampled to the dust. You know, Because of sin in the heart of man, even in a good human system, there's still going to be corruption. There has been through history, there will continue to be for the foreseeable future. Not only that, but there's all the connected pain and misery in an existence uh, in the existence of a sin-cursed world. Yet what a reason there is then to go to the world and to declare, come and worship the Lord. Come and, and bow before Christ. Because he's the Lord who puts all things right. He restores all things again. He, he, he's the, the Lord who cometh. He cometh to judge the earth. Come and worship the Lord because he's, he's coming. And he's coming to put things right. In fact, there's a sense in which he's already begun that. He, he's already certainly come the first time and brought forth his kingdom of grace into existence. He's already begun to do his restoring work. In fact, Christians are called the first fruits. We're, we're the first fruits, if you like, of the, of the new creation. There's a sense in which, while yes, we're, we've still got the baggage of sin in our, in our lives, there's a sense in which already new everlasting life has begun. We have life already. We're not waiting to get it. We have everlasting life. And we have new hearts for God. That the, the new creation has already begun in, in us. That the work has started. And then there's this climax. The Lord is coming again and is going to put all things right. There's going to be perfect justice, perfect righteousness. What a reason to come and to bow before the Lord and to worship. We, we look around with grief at all the misery in this world and we've got a God who is glorious himself and who's also interested in us and in Christ he's coming to deal with it all. 
What a reason to worship. Now, do we live in light of that ourselves? We've got every reason to worship God, especially since in saving us we are the first fruits of his new creation. Christ's restoring work has begun. Do, do we live in light of Christ's coming again to restore all things? Do we, do we live with hearts of worship ourselves, rejoicing? The king is on the throne, and not only that, but he's coming. This, this world isn't going to just keep drifting on forever. Christ is coming. It will all be put right. And we're to live in light of that. We're, we're to live with, with soberness, with, with watchfulness. Christ is coming again. Praise the Lord. Well, what a reason for ourselves to have a heart of worship for our God. What a reason, too, to go into the world and to say, bow before the king. He's coming to deal in righteousness with his creation. Now, there is obviously, yes, the warning of judgment for the rebellious in that. But there's also the great promise of hope, the great deliverance for all who trust in him. We've got every reason to obey the charge of this psalm then. We have a God who is superior to all the, the, the vanities of the world around us. We've, we've got a God who is sovereign and, and a savior who, who reigns, who's on the throne, all power given to him in heaven and earth. We've got a, a king who, who is coming to, to put all things right. What reason? to obey the charge of this psalm and to go forth into this world with an evangelistic spirit, a heart of praise to our God, saying, come, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Not only that, what a reason to show forth his salvation from day to day, to to live in such a way that we declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. May the Lord give us a a heart of worship, a heart of praise, a heart of evangelism for his glory. Amen.